Whoa, whoa, hold on, hold on, hold up for a second. Uh, before we get going, quick correction. When I recorded this episode, I made a mistake with the names of multiple troll moots, and it gets kind of confusing. So real quick, here are the ones I messed up. The Bloodlores, they're the ones to the northwest of the Twilight Peaks, and they are the most ferocious fighters out of all of them. Their neighbors to the south are the Black Fangs. They're the ones that are heavy magic users, but they don't like Nethermancers. And then all the way to the east, we have the Stone Claws. They're the ones that have a very shaky relationship with Thrall. And then finally, we have the Blood Fangs, uh, which I accidentally made up by combining the names of the Blood Lords and the Black Fangs. So if you try to find the Blood Fangs in your book, they're not there. Uh, but if you listen closely, you will hear me teach you the proper usage of the phrase attack someone with fighting. So that's something to look forward to. Okay, let's take it from the top. live from Bar Save. This is episode three, and we're going to talk about how to integrate the Twilight Peaks into your game. I'm Rachel. And I'm Chad. And we want to say thanks to everybody who has been listening to the podcast. We've got a lot of great feedback, um, and we really appreciate that. It's awesome to hear from you guys. Um, So some of the people that we heard from uh, special thanks to Russ Babcock. He's the president of FASA Corporation. Uh, he sent us an email and just told us that he listened to the first two episodes and and uh, really liked it and thanked us for our work. We weren't expecting that, but it was it was really great to hear that. Um, I also got an, an email from Morgan Weeks. He's a uh, one of the developers on Fourth Edition Earth Dawn, and we actually emailed back and forth several times. It was a good good conversation. And uh, he's offered to answer any questions that we have that comes up. Uh, he did a lot of the rules mechanics and uh, a lot of design work on 4th edition Earthon. So that was it was great to hear from him. Um, also, I uh, wasn't expecting this. We, uh, we got an email from uh, Lou Prosperi, and I'm hoping I pronounced that correctly. He, he was a developer on 1st edition Earthon. Uh, so got an email from him and talked to him a little bit on Twitter also. So that was that was pretty cool to hear from him, um, and then uh, we we also um, heard from the RPG squad, yep, which was great, and we set up a, a collab. We're going to be having them on our show. We already recorded one show with Krendar and Dakota, and we're recording soon with Sloan and Hussman. And um, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed those guys. Yeah, it, was. Like, it was like you said, we were geeking out. <laughs> <laughs> and if, you, if you're not familiar with them, they do a show. They all have their individual YouTube channels, but they come together and uh, they do a show on YouTube where they play. I think they may live stream it too. I'm not positive, but they play Earth Dawn and record their entire campaign. They've got something like, I'm going to say they're approaching 30 videos now. Um, so there's there's quite a bit of material out there, and it's it's good stuff. We've got the link on our link section of our webpage uh, for the podcast. It's lavamonkeygames.com slash live from bar save. And if you scroll all the way to the bottom, uh, we have a link section in there on there. Yeah, oh, and we so should we should talk about where our we mentioned our game company name a few times, but we haven't said where it comes from. Right, exactly. Okay, so everyone sees our logo and they see our website lava monkey games and um it's a little unusual a little bit a little bit but um it actually comes from our oldest who loves minecraft absolutely loves minecraft and we have uh him and his brother since they were babies we've just been calling them monkeys because they climb on everything and uh and make it's, a lot of noise and make a lot of mess and climb all over me and yeah. We're probably scarring them for life by calling them that, but it's just funny. We call so them the baby monkeys it. all the time, yeah. So anyway, I was playing Minecraft with him and he kept dumping buckets of lava and setting me on fire. I was like, don't put lava on me. Oops, sorry. He'd do it two seconds later. Oops, sorry. Oops, sorry. So finally, I've been calling him a monkey, so I just called him a lava monkey. <laughs> and uh, 
he kind of acts like he's like really upset that I call him that, but I can tell he thinks it's sort of funny. Right. And, and, and he's upset about the company name. So anytime we'd say the company name, he'd get this really indignant teenage look on his face. But he wears the t-shirt. He yeah. still wears the he shirt. He wears the like, shirt. He he's, wore it out. <laughs> he's Yeah, he did. But you can't see. I had to throw it away because it was just like there was nothing left. Um, but he loves it. He, and he loves that fact. But And it's kind of like a pretend insult that we say to everybody. We'll go, hey, you monkey. You know, and he'll call us yeah. monkeys. But anyway. So anyway, so if you were wondering, that's, that's where it comes from. That's where it comes from. So also, um, we would like to encourage you to tell your players, um, tell your GM about the podcast, tweet about it. You can reach us on Twitter. Um, I'm at Lava Monkey Games and Chad is at Chad Lair. You can email us. My email is Rachel at LavaMonkeyGames.com and Chad's is Chad at LavaMonkeyGames.com. Also on the website, there's a contact us link. Um, if you, uh, if you go on there and send, submit an email through the website, that'll go to both of us. Yeah. And we really appreciate the feedback. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And this is still really pretty early on. We want to do a lot of tweaking, um, as far as the focus of the show, things like that. So don't be afraid to say, I want to hear more of this or less of that. Um, we definitely want that feedback. We want this to be something for the community. Yep. So... You did something while I was at the movies today. Oh, I, I texted you and uh, I, I ran it by you. I've been married long enough to know you don't you don't right. do this on your own. No. No. Okay. So I tweet. <laughs> that sounds terrible. It sounds like I did something awful. <laughs> <laughs> well, it keeps it piques people's interest. <laughs> we'll talk about that next time. No. Uh, <laughs> news at eleven. I keep saying these things that just completely date me. Like mm-hmm. news at eleven. I don't think anyone hears that anymore. Um. So I pledged to the Kickstarter for the 1879 Game Master's book. And if you're not familiar, it's a game, a fairly new game from FASA. Um, it's it's basically what it is, and I haven't gotten into it too far yet. I've watched a couple videos online, but it's it's using the Earth Dawn style step system for the mechanics. So the mechanics are pretty familiar. Um, but what it is is a game where the British Army has, and I, I'm probably getting a little bit of this wrong because I, I'm not real up on it, but they have uh, some kind of a scientist that opened a portal to another dimension. And so it's sort of like a steampunk thing, and they travel back and forth between these different dimensions. And on the other side, there are these primitive people that bear a striking resemblance to the Tuscrang from Earthdawn. And it's, it looks like a really interesting game. I saw a video... I'd have to find the link, but Josh did a video with the the line developer of 1879. They were talking about it, and it really caught my interest. Uh, So I pledged the Kickstarter, and interestingly, it was actually like 50 bucks short of being funded, and I pledged, and it was over. So I got to be the one that that put them over the top. That was pretty pretty nice. Um, So I'm really looking forward to getting that. Um, It's going to be a while, but when uh, I I think... Check the website, but I want to say it was April is when they're estimating the shipping date. Yeah. And the Kickstarter's over on January 15th. Uh, 3 p.m. Eastern PM. time. Yeah. This episode is probably going to air maybe the like the Thursday before that. So if you hear this right when it goes up, you still got a few days to pledge. Um, it is funded, but there are some stretch goals. So there's some additional things they'll be able to do if the funding level reaches a higher yeah. point. Um, and what's really great, the book, from what they said, the book is already done minus the art. So if you pledge for one of the bundles that includes the uh, the PDFs, you get the PDF very early on. You don't have to wait months to get it. The print books will take longer. They got to get the art done and uh, send them to print. But yeah, you get the PDF early on, and the the player's book is, I believe, already out. I'm I'm kind of getting up to speed on 1879. I'm trying to figure out when we're gonna play it. You know, we're playing Earth on. It sounds really cool. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, but don't be surprised if I want to go full on cosplay while we play because <laughs> that is some cool. I think you're already stuff. set with the. I think you already have some steampunk stuff. Yeah, so you could probably do. do it without too much effort. You know, uh, I just want to say we we talk about FASA a lot, but it's important that 
everybody knows that we are not affiliated with them in any way. This is a fan work. We just love Earth Dawn. Uh, we love the world, and we just we love to talk about it. We love geeking out. So, and, and honestly, it's also obviously we have our own company. We we've got a game out called Flibits. It's on iOS for iPad only. We're looking at porting that to some additional platforms. So it's something that we're doing to kind of just get in front of more people and we can talk about our stuff. We're not going to do it a lot, but if you get a chance, check that out and check out our site. And we're having a great time doing but, it and yeah. we're meeting some really cool people. But it's just, we've been spending a lot of time going, oh, go buy this book, buy that, pledge that. And I didn't want anybody thinking that we're getting, you know, there's no uh, under the table deal or anything. We don't make a penny off any of that, but we would love to see Earthon continue to grow and thrive and and uh, just it's better for all of us. The more successful it is, the more uh, more cool products we'll see down And the, the stronger line. the community, which would be really cool. Wouldn't yeah. it be great to see like an Earth Dawn Con? Oh, that would be cool. That would be really cool. Um, anyway, so moving on, uh, the concept for this episode, what we're going to do is uh, Chad is going to talk about how to integrate the Twilight Peaks and um, Sky Raiders and the Trolls into um into your games um gonna focus on not as much detail but more into how to bring it into your game and there won't be any spoilers we're going to kind of tiptoe around them so if we say read the book um we're not trying to just annoy you by right it's because there's a spoiler that we don't want to announce um, and it's then, also not because I didn't read it. It's not the third grade book report thing of skip the last 10 pages. and. But also, I don't want spoilers. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I, I don't want to ruin it for you because I want to do some of this stuff. I'm right. trying to work it in our games. But probably more than any other setting. Now, I haven't got too deep into Bloodwood. It's probably similar, very reclusive. But more than most other settings in Earthon. The Twilight Peaks are, they're physically isolated. It's very difficult just to get in there. You pretty much have to have an airship or there are a couple of mountain passes here or there, but they're all guarded. So it's physically difficult to get into and the trolls have a very reclusive society. So it's difficult. There aren't a whole lot of inroads of how do you get this into an existing campaign. And the the book is Crystal Raiders of Bar Save, the first edition source book. Um, it's available on the FASA Games site, fasagames.com. You can get it as a PDF. It's actually one of my favorite books from first edition, but if I had one criticism of it, it would be that most of the uh, suggestions about how to work it into your campaign, there's a section at the end, most of them give you ideas for if you're starting a new game from scratch. So if you are, that's something to think about you have some opportunities to make a different kind of game that'd be pretty cool but a lot of those ideas don't translate so well uh, there are some ideas scattered throughout the book of how you can bring in outsiders and we'll be touching on some of those uh, but at first i'm going to mostly follow what the recommendations are at that end section of the book and then i'm going to sprinkle in some of the other adventure ideas they've got and mix in a few of my own ideas so that that's sort of what we're doing here so if you look at this section at the end of the book, uh, they give you several different kinds of campaigns that you can play. One is a Raiders campaign where you have a group where all the characters are Sky Raiders. And we've talked in uh, the earlier ones that we're playing an Age of Legend game like that, uh, which is a lot of fun. But it would be difficult to get in the variety because you're going to tend to have a lot of troll Sky Raiders and you don't want to have six of the same character. Uh, so that would be one challenge. There are ways around that. But that's a type of game... Um, you can also do a Troll Alliance game. There's a particular clan. Uh, they're, uh, they're called the Rock Tappers. It's actually a, a clan that's within the larger uh, Black Fang moot. And the Rock Tappers are actually dwarves that have been living in the Twilight Peaks since before the Scourge. So uh, we'll be getting into that a little more here, but that's an interesting kind of tie-in. It could either tie dwarves into the, the Trolls or it could take trolls and tie them into thralls. So if you have Sky Raider characters or any other trolls, they come from this area that you want to be involved with a campaign and thrall. That could be an interesting way to do it. And that could work for player characters or GM characters. In fact, most of this could really, really play either. You know, we play sometimes in thrall, and that's something I haven't done yet. I, I'm going to have to work in 
Um, there's sort of this tentative kind of relationship between the Black Fangs and Thrall, and uh, that'll be kind of a kind of a cool campaign idea to that's get a, into. That's a, a great game. idea to bring the bring the trolls in more. Yeah. Um, and another cool idea is the exiles. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the the exiles are basically there's an area of the Twilight Peaks where if you get kicked out of any of the troll moots and it wasn't something bad enough to warrant being killed, you are exiled uh, from the troll moot and sent to the southern slope of the Twilight Peaks, which is the slope facing Death Sea. It, it's basically inescapable. There aren't any real good ways to get out of there on foot. Um, you could possibly, but any of the other troll moots that see you, if anyone from your troll moot sees you, they're going to kill you on sight because well, trying to escape is affronting troll honor. It, it is, but the neat thing about it, and it's kind of cruel, but the exiles, they cut off their horns. Yep, so they can, any of the other highlands can recognize them from a distance that they're in exile and they don't belong. Yeah. And I've, I've actually thrown in that detail a couple times in our game, other places you meet a troll with his horn horns cut off. And that's what that represents because they, they don't grow back. But it's, um, also, um, Nuots, we talked about that a little bit before, where right. it's like the captured of the trolls, where they can earn their freedom or they can earn a spot. And not only do they earn um, a spot in the society, they become a full-fledged member as if they were born a troll. Right. They're not at and they all... they can be any race whatsoever apart from windlings and scrangs, right? Uh, it really can be any, but typically they don't because they don't survive as well in the in the harsh climate. So other races would be more common, but it really could be any. Um, but that's kind of interesting, too, because if you play Nuot characters or use them as GM characters, um, they could be that they've earned their freedom, they're part of the troll moot, and then they just exercise that freedom to decide to leave, to go back to their old life, uh, to do some adventuring or to do whatever else in bar save. Or they could be escaped Nuots that somehow, now that'd be quite a feat to get mm-hmm. out, but it's possible. So you could have a character that's escaped, so kind of has has some uh, some roots with the Sky Raiders and the Twilight Peaks, but they escaped, and that's kind of their backstory of how they're out there in Bar Save doing adventuring, doing other things. Do they take nuance of other trolls from other regions? I don't believe that's. I'm sorry, you're talking about like from other troll moots, like capture theirs. Well, not from the highlands, but from trolls are. Oh yeah, they're from other regions. Do they take nuance from them? They would basically all be from other regions because the highlands, um, really, the only settlements there are troll settlements, like up in the mountains. So this would be during the process of raiding lowland settlements in the surrounding area. They sometimes raid even almost up to Thrall. So they they can raid. They stay more around the Twilight Peaks, but they can raid a pretty large area. So yeah, these Nuots, that's what's kind of neat about using them as a backstory for your character. They really could be kind of any type of race, any type of discipline from anywhere in Bar Save, mostly could have this as a backstory. And I think one interesting way to use that is if you're playing a human character with versatility and you want to pick up some Sky Raider talents, well, how did they learn them? How did you how did you get that? Mm-hmm. That could be a way. Maybe part of your backstory is you were captured and uh, served on a uh, served on the Sky Raider crew for a while. That even before earning their freedom, sometimes the Nuots will go on raids with them. Right. That's one of the ways that they can prove their worth to earn it. So that's an interesting way to say why, you know, how you picked up some of these other talents or if you even wanted to uh, to play a second discipline as a Sky Raider, that would be a way to work that in. That's how that's how you got it. For GMs, what about having an NPC oh, yeah. who's a Nuat and somehow you do something for him and he takes you back to the moot? Yeah, that's, that's actually one of the inroads you could kind of use. Now, even that is a little bit... Um, it would still be a dangerous situation because you wouldn't typically, even if you are accepted in the moot, that doesn't necessarily mean you can bring your eight closest friends to dinner, you know? So they're still going to be pretty standoffish and it could be a dangerous situation if you accidentally do something to offend them. But that, that, I think that actually is a suggestion out of the book, something very similar to Mm. that. Um, tell me about seekers. Uh, seekers, well, seeker isn't really like a term 
Uh, it's a term in the book, but it's not really like an in-game term. It's more of a general category of a type of campaign you could play. And a Seeker campaign would be sort of like uh, similar to the Raider campaign, where you have all of your, your characters are in one troll moot working toward a common goal. Uh, but what they're doing is doing some type of goal that's common to the, the moot that they come from. I wish we had a ton more time to go into all the different uh, moots, but it's just we'd have to do another two episodes on trolls, and I don't think we're going to do it. So I picked out one in particular that would work well with this kind of campaign. And you can sort of mix and match this with other campaigns, so this idea could come into it. But if you were playing a Seekers game, one thing you could do... Um, it, it would be with the the troll moot called the Sky Seekers. Now these are actually not in the Twilight Peaks; they're in the Dolores Mountains, which is to the west of the Twilight Peaks. So same general area here in southwestern Barsave. Um, the west of the Twilight Peaks, there's a there's a pass between the Twilight Peaks and the Dolores, and that's where the uh, that's where the Sky Seeker moot comes from. They are on the western part. Um, the western part of the Dolores. Little, kind of have to get into a little bit of general purpose Earthon backstory to explain this type of campaign. And uh, like I said, some of these elements you could pick up and mix and match into other campaigns. Uh, I don't actually know how much you know about this, Rachel. Do you know uh, the backstory about how the the scourge, how they knew it was coming, and how they how Thera was founded and all that? I'm not going to go into exhaustive detail on it, but it, I think it might be new to you because I don't think we've it really. It might be, yeah. I'm I sure you've heard it at some point, but it's never been like a it's major, a fuzzy. major part of our game. So you kind of have to understand some of this to get the background. Uh, so there was a an Elven scholar named Elianar Messias, and he was this was pre scourge, and he was in Wormwood, which later became Bloodwood. Well, he had a falling out with the queen at that time, and he was exiled from Wormwood. He was no longer considered a part of the Elvish nation. And in his wanderings, he went to the Dolores, uh, Dolores Mountains. It's It actually, there's sort of a cloud of silence that hangs over it. For some reason, it deadens any sound. So it's sort of become an area for people that want to be able to reflect and have a peaceful a peaceful life to where they can you know get some peace and quiet to reflect on their studies and things like that so he went to that area and he discovered some ancient books and scrolls called the books of haro uh, now these have been these were probably hundred probably thousands of years old from a previous scourge there was at least one other scourge it was possibly more but at least one previous one and he spent some time um Actually, I'm trying to remember now if he discovered them there. He may have discovered them elsewhere and taken them there. I don't remember. I think he might have taken them with him. But in any case, he was translating these books. And he actually ended up killing himself in the process because it just what he saw was so terrible he couldn't stand it. And his students and uh, some of his fellow scholars picked up his work and moved on and continued translating and these books warned about warned about the coming scourge and gave some ideas about what you could do and how to build cares and things like that. This magical knowledge was the foundation of Thera. Um, basically, this knowledge, what they ended up doing was they they came up with the system of how you're going to survive the scourge. But rather than giving it to everybody, they used it to build wealth for Thera. They sort of traded it and use that to oppress the people of Barsave. So that's kind of part of the overarching story of Earthdawn, and that's the beginning of this this tension between Thera and Barsave. Uh, but anyway, the way the way the, uh, the Skyseekers tie into this, they were in that area where his monastery was, where he was doing all this study. So they actually had contact and did some trading um, with the with the monastery and with the monks there while they were doing the research. So they heard about the books of Haro. Uh, they didn't know a ton of detail, but they knew it was important and important to the entire world, and they knew that they were sort of holding it for themselves. And the uh, the trolls of the Skyseekers, they just weren't big fans of that. They felt like this is important, and it should not just you shouldn't just hold it for yourself. So what they did was they started searching that entire area, looking for more artifacts, um, looking for more scrolls, information. 
they kind of found some scraps here and there, but they never came across a major cache of information like, you know, more of these books. And in their frustration, they attacked the monastery and killed everyone there. And one of the, one of the scholars, as he was dying, cursed them. And he said that you're going to spend the rest of eternity searching for what you can't, what you can't find. So this knowledge about the monastery and that, that we need to find out more about the past that is important, they took that knowledge with them underground in the scourge, but during that time they forgot where the monastery was. So they still have ingrained in their culture, and part of it's a cultural thing, and part of it's the effect of the curse. They've just got it on their mind. We've got to do this search and find more information, um, but they don't know where the monastery was anymore. So the way the seeker type of campaign would come in is you could play some some uh, trolls from that area that are just obsessed with looking for the monastery and uh, looking for other information. Uh, there's quite a bit more detail there. I, I actually have a lot more in my notes. I'm going to kind of skip over that. Um, there's just too many other things I want to get to. But even if you're not going to play a game with all troll characters like this, it's an area that you could have other, you know, other characters go into, and this could be an element that a GM could use to, well, to spin you, up a you whole campaign. You touched on something that really kind of intrigues me, is that there was a previous scourge. I didn't know that. Yes. There was at least one, uh, possibly more. Well, it seems like this past scourge was more effective, I guess you would say, or it was more potent, because they still have a foothold, because they would know, have known about the horrors if there had been any, and there are still horrors there. It's actually a little bit different, and the, the magical scholars in the world of Earthdawn, they don't know exactly why, but the theory is that the magic level in the world has always been um, in a cycle. It'll rise and it'll fall. When it's at its highest, that makes it possible for the horrors to come over from their realm in astral space into the physical world. And then the magic level will start to ebb, and when it gets too low, they lose that link and their link and their force back. Um, that was what was expected and uh, to happen in this scourge, but it didn't. It started ebbing, and some of the some of the horrors went back, and then it stabilized before the point where you know they're just waiting for it to drop back to basically nothing. And it didn't. It stabilized, and it's just stayed there for about a hundred years since the scourge ended. So that's why in Earthon the scourge is over, but there are still horrors, and there's some debate among the magical scholars of is this normal? Has this happened before? Is it permanent? Is is the magic level ever going to drop back to nothing? Um, so that it's really sort of up in the air about what's going on with that. But they couldn't stay in the carriage forever, so they went ahead and just declared at the end, even though it's not totally completely over. And that's why there's still horrors in the world. Okay. Yep. Yeah. See, and that's the kind of stuff that is really interesting, but I don't, with new players, I don't want to sit down and go, okay, I'm going to give you a discourse on all of this. You need to kind of know what the scourge is, know what horrors are, mm -hmm. but you can't just dump all that on, on new players. So there's a lot of this stuff that we've been playing on and off for 20 years mm -hmm. and you've never really picked up on. Right. And that, that kind of blows my mind when you said that. I was like, I, I didn't know there was a scourge before. But anyway, I guess that's what I get for not being a GM. <laughs> now, there are a couple other examples of Seeker games uh, that you can play in the book, but I don't really want to go into them because, like I said, I unless you're doing a brand new campaign from, from scratch, you're probably not going to do that. So I'm going to focus the rest of the episode on... What are some ways you can use this even if you have an existing campaign? Okay, like um, meeting a new ot. Yeah, yeah. Or, okay. Yeah, and these could be large or small ways. It could be ways you could throw in a GM character with an interesting background. Or, you know, in an existing campaign, you're going to have characters dying adding new ones. You'll have new players coming in. So this might even be some opportunity when you're adding a new player but not necessarily doing a campaign from scratch. Or like um, they were telling us from the RPG squad, the GM could just come up with a surprise backstory. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you can do that. And as a GM, I've actually kind of written a lot of backstories for the players. Um, actually, when she says GM squad, that's in the episode that hasn't we haven't posted RPG yet. RPG squad. We're, right. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> RPG squad. 
Uh, that hasn't posted yet. We're, we kind of record these in batches and it's recorded, but it's not out yet. But uh, yeah, I actually, a lot of times I will sort of come up with the backstory concept. Now I get the players to kind of, okay. And I go, well, what if they're from this area or that? And I have an idea and I get them to go, okay, yeah, that sounds good. Or no, I want to do something else. So don't be afraid as a GM to take some of this, even if your players don't listen to the podcast and go, here's an idea. Maybe um, like in our game, I did this with our son. He wanted to play a dwarf Sky Raider, which is possible, totally possible. It's not super common, but you can do that. And I just read the Crystal Raiders book. So I said, okay, what if he's part of the Rock Tapper clan that we talked about here, the dwarves that that uh, they spent the scourge underground in a care with trolls. So they basically are trolls culturally. They think and act the same way, Um, but they're dwarves. And it's kind of cool because he sort of plays him like this kind of uncivilized sort of guy. Some of that, I think, comes from being an eight-year-old and just being impulsive, but but it works for that character. So, yeah, don't be afraid to kind of take some of this stuff and suggest it to your players to flesh out some backstory because a lot of times the backstory is lacking especially if the players haven't read a lot of, a lot of and source some material. of those things are uh, dependent on, you know, some physical characteristics like, uh, for example, the, the horns being missing from the exiles and, and I play an elf who I right. picked some odd physical characteristics to help me create a backstory yeah. for him. Yeah. One other idea this is mentioned, I don't know if it says in the book, like use this as a way to get in, but something that is sort of thrown in, there's a detail there are some unauthorized uh, mining crews that the Twilight Peaks are very rich in in magical elements. And especially the southern slope where the exiles are, that is one of the richest areas with true elements in Orichalcum. So there are airships that go in and magically mine, uh, mine this. And the book's got some more detail on the ins and outs of how they do it. But that could kind of be an inroad too. Maybe your character, and this could be any race, any discipline, maybe your character before joining up with their current adventuring group, maybe they were, uh, they were a miner on board one of these ships. And so they could have picked up some, you know, some Sky Raider talents or the Sky Raider discipline, or they could use just about any discipline could be useful. You know, you're going to, you're going to get attacked sometimes and need to fight. So any kind of warrior, any kind of spellcaster, just about anything, uh, could be a good backstory. Even, you know, even a troubadour. I could see a troubadour just, I want to pick up some good stories. So, hey, I got I got hooked up with this mining crew. So that could be a way that your character could kind of take some of this information with them and use that as part of their story. And you can work it in with, with their knowledge skills. So maybe they have knowledge skills of the Twilight Peaks because of their backstory of being on a mining crew or being... And that opens up a lot of half magic opportunities too. Oh yeah, the half magic. Um, well, actually, half magics that basically kind of fills a gap between knowledge, skills, and discipline. So, if you're a sky raider, you would roll half magic in some situations where you would roll for a knowledge skill if you're not a sky raider. But yeah, half magic could play into it. it could play into it too. And if you have even just one character in your uh in your campaign that's got some sort of foothold in having some connection to the twilight peaks now the gm has an inroad to go okay well because of that your character had heard a legend about this magic item that is rumored to exist in this certain area and now you have a reason to go there Uh, see on top of being difficult to get in and difficult to deal with the trolls there who don't want anyone coming in you also have the hurdle of why would you even want to go there to begin with? Now, as a player, there's a lot of interesting stuff. So as a player and a GM, it's cool. There's a reason. But why would your character even think, I'm going to go over there where all these trolls might want to kill me? I think I'm going to take a cruise to the Death Sea. What do you What do you think? <laughs> you know, and that was something when I first started playing Earth on. I'm looking at the book going, oh, Death Sea. It's a sea of lava. That's awesome. And then I start going, I don't know how to use that. We'll we'll probably be talking about that more. Our next episode, we're going to talk about airships and how to kind of do some airship-related things. Not just in Twilight Peaks, though, but that could be airships anywhere um, anywhere in Barsave. We haven't talked much about um, magic 
and how the uh, the trolls use magic because airships are magical. That's yes. how they fly. Um, so the the Sky Raiders use magic yep. um, to repair the ships and to keep the ships going, and you know, just part of the discipline. They use the magic, and and that's pretty interesting. Yeah, um, to some extent, Sky Raiders would have some ability to repair airships. And all adepts in Earthon use magic, but not all of them are spellcasters. So sometimes when we say magic, we're talking about spellcasters, um, but adepts use magic in a, a more general way. Uh, so yeah, Sky Raiders could do some repairs and maintenance kind of things, but elementalists are especially needed in constructing new airships and doing some repairs. So elementalists are pretty important to uh, to the Highland Trolls. And it's kind of funny because some of the clans actually really can't stand spellcasters like the Bloodlords or one in particular. They hate spellcasters. They see it as a cowardly way. You know, a, a, you should just attack someone with fighting. You know, you shouldn't be standing at a distance and throwing spells at them. Um, but they sort of tolerate elementalists because without elementalists, they wouldn't be able to have airships. And what's interesting, they draw a distinction with blood magic, like blood charms. They don't consider that to be cowardly at all. And there's actually, there's a character, and he's in our Age of Legend. I don't have his name in front of me off the top of my head, but there's a blood lore character that makes all kinds of, uh, he makes all kinds of blood charms, uh, like death cheats and things like that. And the blood lords are totally fine with, uh, totally fine with that and Prokwav, the one of the main characters, he's got an astral targeting eye, which is a blood charm, to replace a uh, to replace an eye that was destroyed by earth darts by a Theron elementalist. Uh, your favorite spell, earth darts. Yes. <laughs> and so anyway, it's it's kind of funny because they'll allow the use of blood charms, but if if someone's a spellcaster, they they sort of like oh we don't want them, but they tolerate elementalists. And the, the airships are really cool. And, and one thing that I found interesting is that most of the airships are made from wood. Yeah. But certain moots, or one particular, makes them out of stone. That's correct. The the Black Fang moot, and they are just to the south of the Blood Lords. Now, this is the western part of the Twilight Peaks. Um, and then you got the Blood Lords at the north. Right. And then you have the Great Sword Valley, which is where the bulk of the devastation came from when the Therans came through. We with talked their about city-sized ships, yeah. which, which they made from stone. Those were stone also. Um, which the Theron ships, they the stone airships, they power those with some intense magic, but also with slaves rowing. Um, they can't they can't just have a normal crew. They need hundreds and hundreds of slaves uh, to crew those. So the bulk of the airships in Barsave, just about all of them are going to be wooden. Uh, and due to the, magical theory, um, in Earthdawn, the stone ships are take more powerful magic yes. to get to um, make them airborne. There, there's what's called the law of similarity. That wood a wooden airship is similar to a uh, a wooden ship that would float on water. Wood floats on water, so the magic to make wood float on air is not as difficult as making stone float on air because making stone float on water would be difficult too. So it's kind of a next level uh, next level type of magic that it, you can do it, but it's well, a lot it more difficult. it makes sense that the trolls use the wood more than they use the stone for the simple fact that they don't tolerate as many magic users. So it's, you know, a lesser form, I guess, of an airship. Right. And it, it doesn't take quite the level of skill. It still takes a lot of skill, but it, it doesn't it, take as much. It's not as specialized as trying to make a stone airship. The secrets of that are really only known by the Therans and uh, the Black Fangs, I believe, are the only other place in Barsave that you're going to see stone airships. Um, coincidentally, anyone who's interested in the book, it talks about where they get the wood. There's a particular forest um, in in the Twilight Peaks where there's a lot of true wood, the magical element, true wood, and it's, it's got some interesting points about how the uh, how the different troll moots uh, work together. Over, you know, this is my section, that's yours, and they sometimes get in skirmishes over who has access to what. That particular group of uh, of trees is very, very important because that's where their airships come from. What I found interesting in our Age of Legend game is that even if um, 
someone is raiding the troll area, like they're mining and they don't have, you know, they're not a troll. Um, and there's a ship that's doing mining, even if they're not, that's not their designated turf, they will still go after them for troll honor because they're outsiders. Oh yeah. They're, if like we uh, talked about earlier in the episode, some, there are these mining crews that are generally not authorized to come in and do this. They're, they're really, they know the risks they're taking. So, yeah, and that's an interesting, that could be an interesting game there, too. And we actually have that coming up in our Age of Legend game. It's sort of the point where we cut off. You saw this mining crew in the in the distance, and you guys are flying in to, uh, to attack them. And it's not the turf of the Blood Lords where we're at. It's it's You're sort of in the neutral territory of where right. all the exiles are. So you have exiles from all different. It was kind of funny. You guys came up on them in the middle of the mining ship being attacked by exiles. There are these guys on ropes hanging down doing the mining and the various exiles in the area are climbing the ropes and you're sort of watching the attack from a distance. You're making me want to play this game today. I think that's the Earthon we're going to have to do today. You're watching the attack and seeing people flung off the airship and falling into the lava. I want to play the, the full today. I want to play, them bo- I want to play them both of them all the time. And now right. 1879 too. I, right. want to, I want to do that. <laughs> All right, I'm trying to do the thing where I'm trying to trace back through this stack of uh, tangents. tangents in my head. I was talking about geography, and I said north, middle, and then five tangents. So to the north, you it, it ties into what you're saying, though. To the north, you've got the blood lures, and then you've got the Great Sword Valley, which is where all the devastation was. And then to the south of that, you've got the Black Fangs. Now, the Black Fangs are kind of a unique opportunity for your spellcasters. If you have a spellcaster troll that you want to be a Highland troll, this would be a good move for them to come from. It doesn't necessarily have to be Black Fangs, but it really fits the backstory well. um, They really have some of the best elementalists in all of Barsave, and like you were mentioning, they have stone airships instead of wood. It's made out of this volcanic rock that they have in the area. The black things are kind of interesting because, you know, the trolls obviously rely on raiding. That's the main way they provide for themselves. Well, if you look at the map, they don't have any really good raiding targets. They, if they go north, they have to fly over the blood fangs. They're going to end up fighting them. Uh, you know, they're they're bordering Death Sea. And then if they go kind of to the southwest, they've got the Orc Nation of Karafad. And raiding orcs is sort of a difficult business to be in. They're not exactly pushovers. They do raid there, but they, you know, they don't do so well. They, they, they win some, they lose some. It's not the same as like, you know, ripping off some farmers every once in a while. It's, it's a major ordeal. Uh, the one thing that they've got going for them is they have a lot of magical elements. They've got true, uh, all the true elements, uh, some more than others, but they've got quite a bit of true elements there and a lot of Orich outcome. And that's one of the things that led them to really become uh, more accomplished spellcasters and to really gravitate toward magic, uh, which sort of put more enmity between them and the blood lords who think spellcasting is sort of cowardly. But these guys, not only, hey, it's, it's what we got, it's what they have in their backyard, but also they'll take any advantage they can get. They, they don't have the luxury of being able to say, oh, we're only going to do combat. They're, they're struggling just to survive. They're not one of the more powerful moots. So whatever edge they can get, they're going to get. Which seems almost counter to the idea that they embrace the struggle. You would think they would want to struggle more because it's more, it proves their superiority. Are you challenging their troll racial honor? (laughs) (laughs) No, that's true. I mean, but there are all these examples of the trolls sort of coming up with all these different exceptions. Like, oh, we really need to do this. So let's come up with a technicality to work around. Some kind of reason. that I suppose that's kind of... That's part of their struggle involves they're using magic because it's all relative. Yeah. Who's to say? Right? <laughs> well, uh. the different the different moods too. We talked in the first first episode that we did on this in broad generalities, and there are some things that are common to all of them. But each moot kind of has its own philosophy, 
And even within that, you've got factions that think one way or think another way. So we did some generalizations, but there's a lot of a lot of variation in there too. So other than the elementalists, um, what other um, magical you know spellcasting disciplines have a place in the Black Fangs? Uh, their elementalists would be the the big one. There are also starting to be quite a few wizards, and according to the book. That's more of a recent development that there used to be mostly just elementalists, but there are more wizards uh, are kind of starting to come up. But the one that is outright banned from the blood uh, blood fangs are nethermancers. And there's actually some history behind that. There was a, a nethermancer named Ilum Blackfang, and he was basically he was studying um, the horrors. And I should mention that their proximity to Death Sea uh the the legend goes that the passions imprison death beneath Death Sea. Well, these guys are right next to Death Sea, and they're right next to these two volcanoes called the Eyes of Death. And those are said to be the eyes that death can use to see the physical world from his realm, the realm of death, trapped underneath Death Sea. So because of their area and because of all of the magical elements that they've got, they are they're sort of like right on this doorstep right between they're on death's doorstep actually quite <laughs> quite literally so there was this nethermancer Ilum blackfang and he was studying the horrors he wanted to try to find you know find find out more about them and increase his own power and the horrors struck a deal with him they said that if he would betray his moot that they would give him extra power and extra knowledge and he went for it so what he did this was pre-scourge he was developing designs for cares and he started purposefully putting in subtle defects so that the cares would fail and the horrors could get in and ravage uh, the inhabitants. And his brother discovered that this was going on. Uh, his brother, his name is uh, Galen and he fought him and killed him in his stronghold and sealed it off. And that basically became Elam's tomb. So um, now there, this is one of the areas where I really don't want to get into the spoilers. There's some very cool GM-only stuff in the book. Um, but that is just a rich setting of an entire game that you could play, a series of games based around this. Uh, but just as a backstory, if you wanted to have a troll nethermancer that came from this area, it would be kind of interesting because he could be of this tribe, but he would have had to have practiced in secret. And there are other nethermancers in the area Again, it gets into some spoiler territory. Um, there's there's a tower. Um, there's a tower there that used to be run by Nethermancers, um, and some some interesting GM only kind of stuff there. But they actually, your character, if you have a troll Nethermancer that came from here, would have been risking death execution. They execute him. They throw him into de one of Death's eyes, the volcano. So your character would have been really, really taking a risk to develop to develop that discipline. And it also kind of raises the question of they would have had a trainer somewhere teaching them, you know, every, whether you played in your game or not, every adept is assumed to have a trainer or a couple of trainers that are kind of helping them learn new things. So that again, if you have a, a character from this area, that's a hook for the GM to, to do something else. I think that whole area is so interesting and I find death C really really interesting um there's a there's a legend that death you know death was imprisoned and when there's an, an enough blood spilled on the earth yeah that death will be freed and let's see if you know this from our age of legend game the the way uh trolls are with loopholes oh the way okay so <laughs> trolls are okay with that because they take that really literally and as long as the blood is spilled in on the airship in the air does in the not air, it count, doesn't does count it? <laughs> so that's why they will you know they don't want death to come they want to you know avoid that so they do their they do their killing before breakfast <laughs> up in the airship <laughs> and um and then they bury you know they bury their their dead in death sea they sometimes do. That's a high. That's a high honor. They don't do that every single time. Um, they don't have any particular sentimentality about about the bodies. Um, they usually burn them. But for a, like a, a high level warrior, you know, who is or not not necessarily warrior discipline, but a uh, somebody who is a very respected part of the moot, 
the highest honor they can receive is to be thrown off of an airship into Death Sea after they're dead. I think while they're alive, right. that would be not, yeah, not, not so as good. much fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> another interesting part of um, the Death Sea area and the Twilight Peaks is the Crystal Span. Yeah. Um, I think it's really cool that that's like a neutral zone um, because when the sunrise or sunset hits that crystal span and, and it looks like it's magical, it looks like there's right. magic going on. So the trolls think that that is an extra potent area. So if someone dies there in that area, then it somehow counts more towards death being released. I, I think it's not so much because of the span itself. It's because of the proximity to death scene. And the they, magic. Yeah, they sort of see that whole area as being kind of the gateway into the domain of death. I keep thinking of all these awesome things. I'm like, oh, here's this really cool thing, but it's it's GM stuff. So that whole area <laughs> is really rich for plot hooks. And again, Klingon similarity. <laughs> That's the neutral zone. I'm going to have to study my, my Klingons. I, yeah, I, gonna, I am not endorsing any particular parallel with We're going to have to start with season one. That's a different podcast. That's that's right. you. You can yeah. go for it. Uh, but this uh, uh, crystal span, what it is, it's a large natural formation of living crystal that is uh, the Great Sword Valley that we're talking about. The, the western part of that leaves the Twilight Peaks and goes into a mountain pass between the Twilight Peaks and the Dolores Mountains. The eastern part of that, it's, it's this big archway made of living crystal. And that area, because of its proximity to Death Sea, they say if you spill blood there, it counts just a lot more. And that might be the straw that broke the camel's back. Or it wouldn't be a camel. What would it be? The the uh, the, the Thunder Beast back or something. There's mm-hmm. probably got to be some saying for that. But that might be what pushes it over the edge and sets Death free. So all the troll moves, regardless of their different differences and how badly they hate each other, they will not fight each other. It's it's a neutral zone. Nobody's going to fight anybody there. You step outside of that, you're you're pretty much dead. But it that's an interesting interesting thing. That I, would I'm, be a good place to have a negotiation meetup right there. I, I think that's coming into play in our. Uh, in our Age of Legend Crystal Raider game. And we talked about the Forgiven of Jasper. I want to go into all the detail because it's in the previous podcast. But they are they are thought to be hiding out in the Great Sword Valley, um, which borders that, which could be sort of an interesting way to get them into a game too. A lot of the trolls want to kill them, but they're not going to kill them under the span. So they have to like right. kidnap them and take them back to their airship and... Or, or even in the Great Sword Valley, but that valley, because that's where all the destruction was from the Therans, that is thought to be haunted by the spirits of all the trolls that died there. So that entire area is really rich and just a lot of plot hooks. That would be a really cool expedition to yeah. go down into the Sword Valley and like recover some kind of something. Uh, yeah, and, there, and there's again, there's a lot of stuff in the in the book about that. It's an area that the trolls are pretty superstitious about it, and it, it's up in the air. Is that accurate? Is that not? I mean, Earth Dawn, you can have spirits and ghosts and things, but there are also legends that aren't true. So that's really kind of up to the game master's discretion how much to use that and what's true and what's not. When you're picking knowledge skills pick legends and heroes it comes in all the time oh yeah yeah <laughs> now the fourth edition rules and i don't remember at first had a specific rule on this but it does differentiate between something that's directly related and something that's sort of generally related now that would be more of a general one so you would have to get a higher role but it applies in more situations where if you had knowledge of the great sword valley and you're there it's going to be a much easier role but it's not going to apply as widely um but yeah those knowledge skills picking is sort of an aside but when you're helping new players and they're picking out knowledge skills try to give them some things like knowledge of creatures have somebody that has knowledge of botany so they know if a plant's poisonous or some of the plants will attack you <laughs> right just have a nice mix of skills and it, it really the helps ones the players length, they kind of oh that's not especially par length um, that's that's all over the place there right. are different ones you get different ones in different places well the uh just real quick we're coming up on our uh, on the end of the episode here but 
Uh, I said earlier that some of the things in the book don't give you a lot of specifics about how to get into the setting, but there are three examples here that I thought did really well. All throughout the book, they have these little adventure frameworks, which are just a paragraph or two, maybe three for the GM to say, here's a, an idea of how to get into a game. And there are three I picked out that I think would work pretty well. And there are several more in there. There's one, and I'll give you the page numbers on these. Page 86, there's one called Death's Due. And it ties in with what we were just talking about. Uh, the players can actually, the player characters can go to Death's Eyes, the two volcanoes, and they can seek passage to Death's domain underneath Death's Sea. And the reason they would do that is if they can get into Death's domain, uh, basically a separate dimension, if they can get in there, meet Death, and convince him, they might be able to encourage him to release a character who has died. And that's one thing in Earth on Death is normally permanent, but they leave it open just enough. If you have a character that dies that was a big part of your game, then that's a way if, okay, you don't want him to die, the players are upset, all right, you can get him back, but you're going to have to earn it. And that's going to be some pretty dark role-playing that mm. could be very cool. If you're going to run that game, definitely get the book because there's a whole lot of, uh, a lot of backstory that I would put into a game there that I just don't want to spoil. Um, another one on page 91 is called A Simple Negotiation. There is a, there is, there's a merchant named Omasu who's, a, who's a, um, an obsidian, and he's mentioned several places in different source material. Well, he is basically like any other merchant. He suffers by being raided um, by the Sky Raiders of the different clans. So he wants to kind of strike a deal with the, them. The Blood Lords are the ones really picking on him. He wants to get them to back off a little bit so he could hire the characters to go negotiate with uh, with the leader of the Blood Lords. Do you remember his name? He's in our game. Let's see if you know. No. His name is Chorak Bonecracker Bloodlore. And if you meet someone in real life or in Earth on and Bonecracker is the second scariest part of their name, he's a pretty rough guy. It could be a chiropractor. Well, they can be scary. I'm afraid of chiropractors. I mean, that's it's kind of freaky. I've had that done, but it... You gotta yeah. admit, it's it's a little freaky. It so. is a little freaky. The lot you know, I haven't been to a chiropractor very many times, but the last time I went, I, I said, "Don't crack my neck." That's <laughs> no, please don't. <laughs> it's gonna crack your bones. Yep. We have so many references in here. <laughs> if I you love don't inside get them, jokes. I if you be don't a part get them, they someday. just go over your head. Um, and then uh, the thing is, though, with Chorak, that he's got, he may be somewhat willing to work with Omasu, but he's got some internal political issues if he does that. He's got to watch out for his own position. So it kind of gives the players a chance to get in the middle. That could definitely be considered a weakness to the other um, trolls and the blood wars. But again, there are some particulars and, and this plays right into our game right. that or we're going to be playing. Is, so I don't we're know superior to them. It's, it's like protection money in a way. <laughs> right? Uh, it's like Klingon protection money. Sure. That's, <laughs> I'm just going to say yes. Cause I don't have time to say why not. There, there are a few others. I'm, uh, I had a couple other notes and we're sort of running out of time, but okay. one last thing I wanted to talk about. I, uh, I don't know if it is apparent or not. I'm struggling a little bit in this episode. You may hear my, uh, my breathing is a little rough. I, I have asthma and it sometimes is not a big deal. Sometimes it really gets to me, but I apologize if this episode has been a little choppy. I've had to had to do some more edits than I normally do, and it's a little distracting. So I'm trying to get through it. Um, but it, it just made me actually think about... Uh, I talked about that I'm a game developer. On our website, I have a lot of games that are sort of experimental games. If you go to lavamonkeygames.com, and then there's a button at the top that says experimental games, or, or might just say experiments... Um, there's a game in there that I made called Fun with Asthma. And <laughs> I started it's funny. I started thinking about it. And it's a game, you can play it over the web. The best browser to run it's Firefox, but the web games in Unity are a little glitchy sometimes. Uh, it's not really Unity's fault, but the browser standards are changing. If you have a problem with the web, the web game, try it in Firefox. If that doesn't work, I have a Windows build and a Mac build you can download. And it's a free game. It's a free game. I made it in like a week or something. It was um, for one game a month. 
Right. I'm I'm part of this. Uh, well, I don't do it anymore. It, it was this. It's on Twitter. It's a hashtag is uh, hashtag one G A M for one game a month. And what it is is a challenge, sort of an informal challenge. Uh, to game developers, instead of making a big game that takes you three years and you get half done and scrap it because you're bored, uh, you make one complete game per month uh, for a year. And I did that last year, and this was actually, I believe, my final game. I think was this. I think this was the last one, and I was having a ton of asthma at the time. I'm sitting there in my my armchair, just I couldn't do anything else. But I got my laptop, and I'm like, okay, it's. It's me and asthma going head to head, and I'm going to finish it. So I made a game about asthma, and I thought I was thinking this is sort of like a sort of like an RPG. You know, I, I've got my asthma points that go up and down. I've got <laughs> my stamina goes up and down, and I can either work really hard to try to push through it, or I can take I can rest. But walking to the couch to rest uh, takes some energy. And oh wait, I'm hungry, but I got to get up, and that makes my asthma go. And you got to so, buy medicine. And so. you got to leave to go out and get your medicine. So. I thought all these factors, it's kind of interesting balancing all that. So the purpose of the game is to try to finish making a game while having asthma. And I made this game while I had asthma. So it, <laughs> it's kind of cool. It's, it's, it's some really of the worst game. art I've ever done. I made the game in like a week or two. It, but it, I was like, I got to find a way to laugh through this because at times it's really slowed me down a little bit. But anyway, that was sort of an aside. It just popped in my head. But um Usually I'm doing a little better than I am today. Uh, so anyway, it's that's that's kind of why if you hear me huffing and puffing a little bit, that's why. But it's a it's a fun game, and, and I have not beat it yet. <laughs> I have. I'm very good at right. it. You know, it's funny. I came up with some equations, and I sort of ballparked it in my head. Like, what's the the correlation if I'm having, if my asthma is sort of 50% asthma, how much does that slow down my work productivity uh, if I rest for a while, how fast should I recover? It, the different stats are actually tied together in kind of complex ways under the hood. And you sort of have to play it several times to figure out what's the best approach. And I coded the game and I started playing it. And I tweaked it a little, but mostly I coded the formulas just the way I thought they should work. And I played the game and my approach, my approaches that I take in real life work to help you beat the game. <laughs> And the purpose of the game is to finish making a game while having asthma. Right. Um, and you can check those out again on our website, lavamonkeygames.com. There's a bunch of experimental games on there that are free. And um, yeah. we'd appreciate it if you, you know, give them a try and, and let us know what you think. They're just kind of for fun. They're, they're lower quality. We would never think of selling something that's that rough and unpolished. So bad art there's some bugs in there my my son was playing fun with asthma and he was like oh it's not working i'm like yeah, i'm not going and fixing that i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> you didn't buy it it's free no they're uh i think some of them are fun some are better than others um but check those out if you get a chance yeah uh, well, that does it for another episode of Live from Bar Safe. We really appreciate you listening. And if you want to reach us, you can get us um, on our website, lavamonkeygames.com. There's a, a link to Live from Bar Save. Um, you can comment on this podcast. Well, I guess if you're there, you you, you know, you probably yeah, do. You, you got to click down into the individual pod. Um, the podcast page doesn't have comments. But if you click on any individual podcast, there's a comment section for right. it. And by the time this airs, we should have our RSS feed up and working. Yes, I'm trying to get that set up. Um, today is actually what day is today? I don't even know. The time of the recording is January 7th. I'm going to try on January 7th to get the RSS feed done so that this works more like a regular podcast instead of having to just stream it off our site. You'll still be able to stream it off the site. But the idea is to get it to show up in iTunes and probably some similar sites. And also, if you have some kind of other podcasting app, you'll be able to put in the RSS link and then use your app to be able to download and listen offline and all that. Uh, the original plan was to do all that up front. And instead of I just sort of got excited about it. And I go, well, you know, let's just they're done. We have a couple episodes done. Let's put them on the site while I'm getting everything else set up. So. We appreciate you bearing with us while we're getting all that going, but hopefully that will be resolved by the time this airs. It may take, I've read up to even a couple weeks before iTunes will show it in the search and everything. 
but that's that's all in progress, just so you know, and that should be resolved shortly. Yeah. And we really appreciate all the feedback, and um, it's it's a lot of fun interacting with with you guys. Um, you can get us on Twitter. I'm at Lava Monkey Games, and I am at Chad Lair, C H A D L A R E. You can also send us an email. My email is Rachel at LavaMonkeyGames.com. And mine is Chad at LavaMonkeyGames.com. Yeah. And final reminder, go check out the 1879 Kickstarter. At the time that this goes live, you should have just a few more days uh, before uh, before that's up. So uh, definitely give that a look. And next time we're going to be talking about airships. Talking about airships. And we may have a special guest, Rachel's brother, Everett. Now, we're not sure if he's going to be on the next one, but he'll be coming up soon. Um, we're going to do sort of a family intervention over the the incident of setting the building on fire and Rachel's character almost being killed. So nice. I don't know if he'll be on the airships episode or another one, but he'll be coming up soon. And I, airships, and then we'll probably do miscellaneous catch-all troll stuff. If you have any particular troll questions you want covered, um, send them an email or on Twitter. And we'll we'll work in um, it, just general questions about Earthon too. We'll try to get those covered if you can uh, send us one. Okay, well that does it for today. I'm Rachel, and I'm Jen, and this is live from Bar Save. See you next time. See you next time. <laughs>